Climbing Gold is a production of Duct Tape and Beer. Did you mute me, Fitz? Or did I mute myself? I muted you. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Good call. <laughs> so you don't have to listen to me and sign and being like, wait, so what time are we going to the gym? What's happening? And who's doing what? <laughs> Hi, Lauren. I got Hi. your book in the mail yesterday. Just by This is Lauren, our awesome producer. It's pretty into it. Oh, thanks. She's also an author, journalist, historian. The thing that basically just arrived at the house and I was like, oh, what fortuitous timing. Oh, that's sweet. <laughs> I'm Lauren Delaney Miller. I worked on the search and rescue team in Yosemite Valley for three years, I guess 2018, 19, and 20. And how did you get interested in Yosemite climbing history? Well, I'm from the East Coast, and I think for me, like, as a climber there without a big climbing community, I just read as much as I could about climbing. And I think I kind of had one idea of what Yosemite climbing history was like. And then when I kind of ended up spending a lot of time in the valley and working there and getting to know that community... I was like, wow, there's a lot of stories that we've never really heard of. And so what were some of those stories? I heard a lot about women being involved in the early days of climbing. This is like even the 30s, 40s, 50s. And just thinking about like women's involvement. And I felt like they'd often been written about as kind of accessories or like people who went climbing, but weren't really like super influential in the sport. And I felt like when I started really digging into the kind of the way back history at the beginning of roped climbing in Yosemite, I was kind of shocked by how influential women really had been. And I feel like it was really different than things that we had heard before. Because I feel like now, you know, I mean, everyone kind of knows that women crush (laughs) and climb hard, and it's been that way for a while. But I think that when we think about, like, really the beginnings of rope climbing in Yosemite, like, oh, women were way more involved than I think people tend to think. So Lauren started digging, compiling stories, tracking down the women climbing pioneers. The end result was her just-published Valley of Giants, which features a set of truly incredible essays from women climbers who have helped define our sport in Yosemite. And why do you think some of those stories have been forgotten? Or like, you know, why don't I know those stories as well? Well, I guess within climbing, I feel like we have a tendency to prioritize telling the stories of like the first or the fastest or these things that are like the biggest achievements. And so I think that when we look back at early climbing literature, which is just really recording important ascents, I think we have kind of passed down this idea that women weren't involved in a lot of first descents, and so it wasn't really worth talking about, and those stories really weren't worth recording. And I guess I found that I started by thinking, okay, well, that isn't really fair. Like, just because women weren't involved in a lot of first descents doesn't mean that their stories aren't also valuable. But then I think that what I found was actually that that's not actually even true. And it's also like without any context about the barriers that women and other people from marginalized groups might have faced when trying to get into climbing that would have then put them later in a position to kind of leave a big mark on the sport. Some women have always been able to break through those barriers, but they had to kind of be like exceptional, right? Like they had to really stand out and really push much harder. Whereas... Yeah, Lynn Lynn Hill comes to mind. Yeah, like you needed to kind of have that personality type to be able to overcome some of those barriers. And it's not that they were impenetrable. It's just that not everyone is going to be in a position to do that. As she was working on a book, 
She was pouring through journals from Stanford Alpine Club and going deep into online chat rooms on the now-defunct Supertopo to find leads. I'd already gone through the 300-post chick history thread and had kind of started, like, putting all these names together. And then there's, like, one post from a climber in Australia, and it just says, oh, here are a few of my recollections. And there's a lot of the same people, Mari, Sue, Maria Craner, Tammy Knight. I'm like, okay, cool. And then it says Lydia Brady. And so I Google her, and then I find a whole bunch of stuff about Lydia's climbing on Everest. And I found out that she was the first woman to climb Everest without supplemental oxygen, and she wrote a book about it, and there's all this really cool stuff. And then I finally find this section in Lydia's bio page on her website in which she says she spent about nine months in Yosemite, and in that time she climbed ten big walls, seven of which were first female ascents. (laughs) And I'm just like, well, that seems significant. Yeah, I was also surprised that I'd never heard of Lydia. I mean, everybody knows Reinhold Mesner's name. You would think that I would have at least heard of her at some point. But I think she's just kind of flown under the radar for a long time. But not anymore. Welcome to Climbing Gold, Lydia. In 1980, Yosemite, most people cared about LCAP. And while some people were pushing free climbing grades, a lot of the attention was still being placed onto putting up really hard aid lines. Yeah, so I think when most people think about aid climbing, they think, oh, you place a piece of gear, you move up, you place another gear, you move up. But like hard aid climbing is different in that each of those placements can take 10, 30, an hour minute, you know, 60 minutes to place. Like it's, they're so tedious. Like hard aid climbing is so tedious and you're spending so much time making each move because the gear is terrible and each move might not even be able to hold your body weight, let alone hold you if you're falling. The name of the game is definitely to not fall, but people are taking huge falls anyway and ripping almost whole pitches worth of gear until they have something good enough to hold a fall. And so that's kind of what we think of as A5. But in the 1980s, people were really wanting to know what the next level was, and there was kind of this mythical idea of A6. And it's kind of one of these things that doesn't really exist, but everyone thought that maybe they were getting close to it. If, if you really found an A6 pitch, that would mean that if you fell, you'd rip all your gear, you'd rip out the anchor, and both you and your partner and all of your stuff would fall to the ground and die. Except that it's hard to ever know if you're climbing A6, because if you don't fall, you don't know if that would have happened. And so, you know, there's times when people feel like they might be on A6, but it's this mythical thing because you'd actually have to fall for that to happen. And people that are that good at aid climbing often don't fall. And so it's always remained this kind of mythical thing that might exist, but might not. And into this moment, walks a 19-year-old New Zealander. She hates athletics. She's physically awkward, not good at free climbing. But she has this overwhelming desire to experience the feeling of what it's like to be on the steepest bits of El Capitan, thousands of feet above the ground. She sits down in the meadow, and she says, I want to be up there. You know, there are people who dream of doing things, and then there are people that go and do them. And Lydia has done some things. Today, we talk to climber and guide Lydia Brady about the dark art of aid climbing, Mount Everest, and the power of big nature. Big dreams come with big risks. I'm Alex Honnold. I'm Fitzgerald. This is Climbing Gold. 
what I knew I had was I had a brain and it wasn't like it's not exceptionally intelligent but I'm really good at using what I've got and I'm not I wasn't very brave physically and so I managed to convince myself that big wall climbing was really not very physical I mean it was hard work that's fine I wasn't going to fall off by running out of strength and once I figured that out then that gave me the alleyway to get into getting up into those amazing places. I'm Lydia Brady. I am an IFMGA mountain and ski guide and a Himalayan climber and an owner of a cat. And I live in uh, Aotearoa, New Zealand by a lake. I love having adventures, but I also love having a really beautiful house. It's me. When did you start climbing? I started climbing when I was about 17 and I mountaineered. Uh, my background is that I was always super bad at sports, like super bad, so bad that I would like the sports day at primary school, which is, you know, up to about ten, uh, eight years, 10 years old. Sports day would be three months out and I'd be worried about it. It would be looming. It would be this thing I would be scared of because I was so bad at sports and I was teased for walking funny. It was quite hard. I discovered what we call tramping in New Zealand. It's a very old, frumpy word, but it means hiking. But we generally hike without using the trails. So we cross mountain ranges and we've got tons of mountain ranges, as you know, in, in New Zealand. And so it's sort of adventurous hiking. It was 1981. Lydia was excelling at mountaineering in New Zealand. And she decided to head to North America. She made it an attempt on Denali posted up at the cliffs at Squamish. And by the time I got to Yosemite, I had discovered aid climbing, but I still couldn't free climb. I was too scared to free climb. Free climbing was really scary. I know, I was like, don't, no, my arms are really stick-like. You know, like I had a round body, and like arms that stuck out and legs that stuck out. <laughs> like a kid's drawing. So how did you make the leap from playing around in Squamish to aid climbing all cap? That's a pretty fast progression. So John Middendorf is a rad American climber who is one of the most academically intelligent people I know. Uh, he created a business called A5, which I, he then onsold, which made uh, big wall technical equipment and portal ledges and, uh, but interesting designs, good designs. John must have been about the best person in the world she could have met. John had been rope soloing Zodiac, one of the most classic walls, and took a long fall and needed to temporarily retreat to the valley floor. He was looking to go back up onto the wall, and I decided I really, really wanted to go back up, go onto these big walls in Yosemite. And this was my opportunity. And I literally pestered John for three days. And I think his friends were going, who is this? New Zealand girl with this weird accent pestering you to go up on the big wall and he relented and uh, so we went up and I led quite a few I'm, I probably led between a third and a half of the pitches but not a half and was addicted. The first spring Lydia progressed through the standard routes on the easier walls. Yeah, so you keep talking through your development as, as an aid climber. Like, how did you continue to learn and, and how did you find out about harder aid routes? Remember, it's the 80s, so we're still aid climbing a lot of it. And you'd be on 
leaning tower and you'd see wet denim daydreams and so by the end of the first season I when I came back to my second season I had ambitions to do the more interesting routes. One of the first test pieces Lydia turned her attention to was Mescalito. Mescalito is one of the classic walls on El Cap. Parts of it would become Tommy Caldwell's and Kevin Jorgensen's Don Wall. On a first attempt, a few pitches up the wall, her partner decided to bail. So I left the gear on the wall, went down, went into the valley, into Camp 4 and said, I need someone to finish climbing Mescalito. And this dude in a Peruvian hat with ear things (laughs) said uh, that he'd do it. (laughs) I didn't know who he was. They head back up. Peruvian hat guy hops on the lead, gets back to the high point. And then he's got another 40 feet of climbing of his own, puts his first pet on in, blows that, pulls it, zippers the whole pitch. So I'm <laughs> belaying off my waist. I've got this guy I don't know with his Peruvian hat uh, with ear flaps, zipping down this big wall to me. The pieces all rip out. He goes all the way down, like in the movies, and uh, stopped. And the last piece that held him was this uh, fixed copperhead. That's crazy. Peruvian hat guy bails, strike two. Undeterred, Lydia goes back down and heads to camp four to find another partner. There was this guy, Chuck Wheeler, who was a friend of John Middendorf's. And I'd met him once before, hello, goodbye, that's it. And I saw him checking in and I just go, he's a friend of John's, he'll be smart. And I just went up to him and said, Mescalito, I've got everything up there. Do you want to go and climb it? And he turns around and he goes, yeah. And then he climbed it with me. And, you know, that was the beginning of a wall teamship. Chuck and Lydia were looking to keep pushing themselves. At the time, Sea of Dreams was probably considered the most difficult route on El Cap. It was rated A5. It had the potential for hitting ledges if a piece failed. They wanted to climb something that was at the very edge of possible, but maybe not quite as dangerous. We were looking for some hard A5, but that wasn't necessarily meaning that you were going to hit a ledge. And then we heard that Dale Bard had come down from Sunkist. I'd never met Dale Bard, but he was one of the hardcore American climbers. And he'd come down and said, now I know what A6 is like. And we were like, well, that sounds like us. Look, there's a big golden wall, there's nothing to hit, and it's A6. Sunkist tackles the stunning shield of golden granite on the left side of El Cap. Lydia did not know Dale Bard. She summoned the courage to call Jim Bridwell, the sort of de facto mayor of El Cap and icon of the Stone Masters, for a topo or beta. He had no topo, and the only bit of advice was that they would need a lot of copperheads. After the break, we almost confirm the existence of the mythical A6. It's almost like we got Bigfoot footage or something. Alex, I <laughs> I feel like we need a little tutorial on aid climbing. Yeah, like how physical would 1980s big wall climbing be? Yeah, 1980s big wall climbing with extensive nailing would be more comparable to a day of manual labor 
like framing a house or, you know, breaking rocks around in the yard and carrying them around. I mean, basically just hard physical work. I mean, it really has nothing to do with the way most people imagine climbing nowadays. Because, you know, now you think of climbing as going to the gym and making cool moves and jumping to holds and chalking up. But I mean, 1980s big wall climbing, you know, you're not wearing a chalk bag, you're wearing boots and you're basically just swinging a hammer all day. It's like, that's not what we consider climbing nowadays. Would you say that a day of that kind of aid climbing would be the least ideal day of climbing to you? Yeah, if, if I had to go climbing with a rack of pins, especially an extensive rack of pins, I would expect to be getting paid a day rate as a carpenter. It's like if I'm up there just hammering away all day, I expect to be getting my day rate. Because I'm like, that is not climbing. Like, that is not what I signed up for. Yeah. I have placed a copperhead before, but when someone starts talking about copperheads, I'm like, oh, shit, snake, you know? <laughs> so what is a copperhead? So a copperhead or a circle head or really anything that's called a head is basically a malleable piece of metal that you just smush onto the rock with a hammer. So if you imagine taking like a slug of metal and just smashing it against the rock with a hammer and then the surface tension, basically like the surface area between the metal and the rock sticks together and then you're able to weight that very, very carefully. Heads are totally stupid. It's, I don't know, heads are, I think heads are a little silly. What is a, what is a rope? A rope is a very, very small piton. Though nowadays, most people don't really know what pitons are anyway. So, uh, I mean, I guess the easiest way to imagine a rope is to, to take a, a large postage stamp made out of metal and hammer it into a tiny, tiny crack, like a hairline crack. Yeah. I mean, ropes are, ropes are stupid. Like, I mean, I've climbed a lot of routes on El Cap. I don't, I don't know if I've ever actually clipped a rope. I've never, I don't even know. If I've, I've, I've seen them, I guess. But like, basically, you know, I've climbed 25 years and I've never had to deal with ropes. Back to Sunkist. We thought that there was this one A6 pitch there, but we didn't know, of course, which one it was. And secretly, we both wanted to score the A6 pitch. We loved climbing together and we'd be really supportive. And the, but at the same time, you'd be kind of slightly, slightly competitive. So, you know, Chuck would be up there and he'd be going, oh man, this is so hard. And I'd be going, oh, are you going okay? He'd go, yeah, yeah, no, it's really good. And I'd go, do you think it's A6? <laughs> and you'd go, oh no, it's about A5. And so it would got went like that all the way. And I go, oh, if this isn't A6, it's A5 and three quarters, you know. <laughs> but you're not going to die or you're not going to break a leg because you're just going to go into space. Chuck's up there hammering away. I think it was like 19 or 20 um, copperheads and ropes. And then, so that's quite a long way up the pitch. And it was just nothing except a small shallow seam. Uh, then you traversed under an, an overlap on circle heads. And he pulled uh, his second circle head and zippered that whole lot and then came onto a the belay and broke we broke one of the bolts that is, that is that, that's like my nightmare i'm like who goes aid climbing and rips the whole pitch breaks the belay i mean just like that's that's all bad times i know but you, you know you're young like you're young and i wasn't driving fast cars i just yeah but i, I was once young and you 72 but i got into free climbing you know, yeah, like, no, didn't exactly. need to go do circle heads and <laughs> and you know you're just like oh that's that's all bad times Lydia ended up tackling what would be the climb's crux, a thin seam where the climber is only really held to the wall by a few millimeters of metal. Lauren, from your perspective, what's so interesting about this story? 
in one season. She went from climbing things that are kind of still good test piece first L cap routes. And like, yes, there's a progression. And yes, there's not as much athleticism that would require years of experience. But at the same time, like the headspace that you'd have to be in to go from one of those routes and going, okay, I guess I'll do the next most difficult thing. And now the next most difficult thing. And like somehow months later, you're climbing the single most difficult thing. Like it's just such a wild progression from a kind of standard aid climbing of the time to making the second ascent of the most difficult route on the wall. All told, she spent just two climbing seasons, a spring and a fall in Yosemite. Almost as quickly as she had arrived, Lydia moved on from the valley towards bigger objectives. I decided to do the kind of mountaineering that was uh, like hiking mountaineering. Stomp, stomp, stomp. And because I was quite good at working hard and I was quite good at getting strong. So I gravitated into areas where I could use my brain and my motivation and my resilience, if you like. She turned her attention to the Himalaya. By the 1980s, climbers were no longer simply happy to get to the top of an 8,000 meter peak. They were looking for harder or more difficult routes or improving on style. In 1986, Reinhold Messner completed all 14 8,000 meter peaks without supplemental oxygen. The Eastern Bloc climbers were rampaging through ever more daring and difficult ascents. In 1986, Lydia began throwing herself into the deep end. That year, she endured a true epic after a storm closed in on her and her partner, and they were struck by multiple avalanches in India. In 1987, she summoned Gasherbrum II in Alpine style without oxygen. When the opportunity to join an expedition to Everest with the Slovakian team came up the following year, Lydia was curious. Could she climb Everest without oxygen? She'd be the first woman and first Kiwi to do so. Joining her were two fellow Kiwis, Gary Ball and Rob Hall, who would later become one of the main characters in John Krakauer's Chronicle of the 1996 Everest disaster, Into Thin Air. In the olden days, going to the Himalayas, you had a liaison officer, and one of their jobs was if you didn't want to be on the route that you had the permit for, you'd say to your liaison officer, excuse me, but the Pakistanis have mined the glacier on the approach to that route on Gashbrum 1, so we need to change the ridge that we climb. Or there's too much avalanche danger on ridge, um, on the east ridge, we'd like to go to the north ridge, you know, that kind of thing. That's what they're there for, okay? And that's how they did. But, uh, and so our plan was to go there. New Zealanders, we had a permit for the southwest face of Everest a seven-year wait to get a permit for Everest in those days because there was limited numbers. And the Eastern Bloc couldn't bring US dollars. They were the really hardcore climbers. So the Eastern Bloc countries would buy the permits well in advance, seven years in advance. Then they'd go out and say, hey, we need to join partnership with a Western country expedition who can bring the US dollars. So joint expedition. New Zealanders went off with a, a permit for the southwest face of Everest. We were going to go there and say, Sorry, too hard for New Zealand climbers. Can we get a permit for the easy route? But we couldn't get a permit for the easy route because the important decision maker was out of town. So we were going to apply later. So we all went and tried uh, a route without a permit, all New Zealanders. Almost right from the start, there were tensions in their base camp. 
the Slovakians would attempt the route they were all permitted for. Rob Hall and Gary Ball and Lydia would go up the standard route that most people climb today, but Rob and Gary would go ahead. Lydia would be alone. The day before her summit attempt, Rob and Gary would fail to reach the summit. Most of the climb from the South Col, which is at 8,000 metres to the summit, uh, I was alone, although there were people on the mountain. There was a French expedition with some Sherpa to begin with, a very small one, and there was a small Spanish expedition. The French expedition turned around when I was, say, at about 8,300 metres, and there were the Spanish who were ahead of me, and they were on oxygen, except for their Sherpa, their Suda, who was making his fifth ascent without oxygen. We forget about the Sherpa heroes. So I climbed to the South Summit and I met the Spanish at the South Summit, which was 100 vertical metres, 300 feet from the vertical from the main summit. And that's one of the technical cruxes of Everest is between the South Summit and the main summit. It's got the Hillary Step. There was a little fixed rope on the Hillary Step just in one little spot. It was just a tiny rope and I couldn't see what it was tied to, but no other fixed rope. And at that point, I was really tired. I got to the South Summit, met the Spanish coming down, and they were really stressed because they had two people, one person with really bad frostbite, one person with cerebral edema. And so they were really, really stressed. And they said, if I continued on, I would die. Uh, It wasn't very reassuring. It was a really big decision to go on. I had the thought that I knew I could get down from the South Summit, and I knew I could get up to the main summit. But I, I knew that at some point the energy or the gas it's not really the gas but that's how it felt like the gas would go and I had no idea of whether I could complete that whole circuit up to the main summit back down to the south summit and then down so that was the only time that I have consciously slowly walked into risk after the break we head for the Hillary step back before there were crowds. So Alex, I was thinking about the moment on Everest and kind of how it related to what Lydia was doing in Yosemite and aid climbing. And it was like, this is exactly like standing on dozen, like one body weight placement after another. You know, it's like you're taking steps further away, right? <laughs> totally. And, totally. Yeah, it feels like... Each step upward is just making it more and more sketchy. Totally. Yeah. It's almost like you're swimming away from shore straight into the ocean. But in some ways, those are some of the best moments in climbing or those moments of commitment where you, you just decide that you're like, okay, I'm all in and I'm doing this thing. You know, I mean, I've certainly experienced those moments... Uh, free soloing sometimes and or like leading on gear you know maybe I don't want to do this but this is what has to happen and now I'm totally committed and you know this is now like my whole life is now focused on achieving this one thing like getting to my next piece of gear or the summit of Everest it's probably worth considering the stakes the consequences of running out of energy on the more technical bits of the summit ridge would mean death that's the obvious part. Turning around, well, that means forgoing a dream. And in those days, you might have to wait another seven years for another opportunity. And aside from the raw goal of reaching the world's highest point without supplemental oxygen, there's the reality that this would change her life if she was successful. 
At that time, Reinhold Messner, the first person to complete that objective, was a household name in Western countries. The most famous New Zealander was Sir Edmund Hillary. He's a knight because he climbed Everest. So the upsides of a successful summit are big. But this was my chance. So I felt the risk almost as if it was a closing down of your vision. So, you know, everything goes down to a funnel. All I've got to do is focus on the steps ahead. Lydia decides to go. And I just felt that as soon as I got closer and closer and closer to the summit, I was, of course, further and further and further away from safety. People ask me, how was it when you finally got to the summit? And my real answer is that I was so happy because I could turn around and go down. And what I always found with altitude climbing is it's so much easier going down than going up. It's more easy than at sea level. I mean, I had mountaineering experience from New Zealand. I had ISAC step, step, ISAC step, step, and steep terrain. I was, I was experienced at just moving through moderate terrain with an ISAC and crampons. So I could go into autopilot mode, but I've always considered that that's my biggest kind of slow step into risk. Did it feel like that risk was worth taking because of the, the stakes, like because of the opportunity to be the first woman to... Absolutely. And also, I wanted to go and climb Everest without oxygen. Not just I wanted to be the first woman, but they're all motivating factors. You know what I mean? You use them as motivating factors, but the real reason that you need to be there has got to come from something else, this kind of yearning, you know, this desire to prove yourself to yourself, this desire to feel the excitement of achieving goals. It's exciting. It's not just sort of through uh, being an insecure overachiever. <laughs> Once you made the call to go, did you like second guess yourself at any point along the ridge? Like, like, did you just make one solid choice and just go for it? Or was it kind of something you felt out along the way? The Hillary step was quite committing, actually, because, you know, you had to bridge up this kind of corner and uh, it's so different with ropes. It's so different because you're not going to fall. I mean, if you fail, you just hang on a rope. And that was kind of okay going up. But coming down, I got to the top of the Hillary step and that was probably my weakest point. And I just go, oh, I can't go down here. I'm going to fall. I'm just too tired. I can't go across this. I can't go across this. Well, I have to go across this because actually the outcome is going to be the same if I don't. So I was nearly going to stay there at the top of the Hillary step. And I just managed to override my motivation to sit by the motivation to get down. And I probably used it. Look, if I get down, I'll be the first woman. But in that is also the joy of getting out. And this comes to this whole concept of risk. The key takeaway I learned was this. If you try to do the things that you are prepared to take responsibility for, then you do a whole, it's, it's much more interesting and it's much more rewarding. And you also feel a little bit better about it. And it's not just about epicness. You know, that moment of sort of commitment on the South Ridge, deciding to just go forward to the summit. Have you experienced I don't want to say out of body, and it, and it's probably a little bit different when you're at super high altitude like that, and you're and you're hypoxic and slightly impaired, and even in the best of circumstances. But uh, but I've sort of experienced a lot of I don't want to say out of body, but but slight like 
automation or something, you know, where, where you sort of go into autopilot and your body just sort of performs whatever it's supposed to do once, once you sort of commit to a choice. It's like, have you experienced that with, with taking those kinds of risks? I think that's a really nice way to describe that. And probably, yes, I would have made that decision to go along the summit ridge and then I get to the set, the Hillary step and then I had to make another decision. You know, I, I, I came back into myself, if you like. I didn't, I'd never had an out-of-body experience and I have felt in the zone a couple of times just recently rock climbing because I've just gone back to rock climbing after years and years of not rock climbing and tiny things like really 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 simple things and I'm wow it just flowed and I was just right there and I didn't even feel about where I was and perhaps that's the same and so it's less outer but almost more inner yeah exactly but but just a sense of surrender to the experience where you're like you know I'm not going to second get this anymore it's just happening and like and it's happening to me we'll just see how it plays out for me to walk along that summit ridge, I just have to, every breath is a motivation. You know, you're just like, okay, I'll commit to it. And then you have to focus. I had to focus on just getting my breathing and not stopping for more than 10 breaths at each stop. Because 10 breaths would come, 20 breaths would come, 30 breaths, and then I'm just stopped. And then I stop and then I die. So basically, I'm not just kind of just in the zone. I'm 100% focused on doing the actual physical the physicality of the climbing it just requires quite a lot of work yeah did that make you know that that choice of like being like well that was like the little extra motivation to be the first woman without oxygen did it make you famous like were you a kind of a national hero because of it i was a national unhero because of it because the people on my expedition the New Zealanders were a joint expedition with Slovak, who made a uh, second descent to the southwest face of Everest alpine style and without oxygen. But they all, all died when a big storm came in once they'd reached the summit. So they were, all died on the way down. And the New Zealand team, we were all going to climb the easy route, the normal route. Uh, the rest of the New Zealander team attempted Everest and then went home. And then they included Rob Hall, who's kind of famous in the movie Everest you know, for dying in 1996 and Scott Fisher in that big storm with all these people on Everest. But he um, was on my expedition and he and his friend Gary, they made an official statement that it wasn't possible that I climbed Everest. So my ascent became incredibly controversial. And it wasn't until later that it was ratified that I'd summited Everest. So yeah, I went into a pretty dark place for a while. So I was an unhero. Was that strictly like personal jealousy sort of thing? Or I saw something written up online that had to do with permits and, and the legality and the Nepalese government and all those kinds of things. I mean, was that was that like a petty move or was that like sort of a strategic move? Yes to both. <laughs> so we all went and tried uh, a route without a permit, all New Zealanders, except they didn't summit. So when they came back, they said, oh, we were on the southwest face of Everest, which they weren't by a gazillion miles. And that Lydia broke the law and she didn't summit and that was pretty hard to explain but now it's really easy to explain because you just go hashtag me too I wasn't and I was a pretty kind of oh, I didn't sleep with the right people <laughs> and you know I was um, I wasn't super conservative uh, I was an easy target. I set myself up as an easy target and then I did a really good climb and uh, 
it was easy for them to diss it you know it's nothing too complicated about it really but it had a huge huge effect yeah it's kind of kind of a sad story that way sad but you know what um it's that's over and done now you know it's just like it my a sense being recognized i'm uh it's fine you know it's fine now i'm in a different space and i have been for a long time it's life you know life is not perfect the controversy was always something that people asked about and sometimes it made me pretty sad because the climb was actually pretty cool and I felt that that's what got lost if Lydia who was always bad at sports can climb Everest without oxygen what can someone who's got more skills do open the door you know let the next person come through yeah so that I felt that was lost a little bit now but now um, then but um, that opportunity to build on that for not just me but for other people my personal mission and all of my work and all of my speaking and all of my guiding and things like this now is that people embrace big nature. It's way more sophisticated than our iPhone. That even a tiny risk or a tiny um, hard bit of hard work strengthens their brain neurologically and gives them more fortitude and makes them more interesting people. And I don't care. It doesn't really matter if you climb Mount Everest or you climb uh, or you solo huge, big, sheer, amazing walls. It's the experiences and the decision-making that create you and just keep growing you and growing you and growing you. And you do that in big nature where it's consequential. And I do that in big nature. Even a garden is big nature, you know. Yeah, I think we all, we all agree with that. Thank you, Lydia, for sharing your story. You can find her at LydiaBrady.com. And thank you, Lauren, for your curiosity and chasing it down the rabbit hole. We cannot recommend her new book, Enough, Valley of Giants. You can find it at good bookstores and online. Climbing Gold is a production of Duct Tape Then Beer. Alex Honnold is our host. This episode was written and edited by Evan Phillips and me, Fitzka Hall. Additional editing by Matt Martin. Production help from Lauren Delaney Miller, Austin Syadak, and Anya Miller. Music today by Brennan O'Connell, Amy Stolzenbach, and Cordelia Zars, and me. Our executive producers are Becca Call and Lisey Hendricks for Duct Tape Them Beer, and Jonathan Retzik and Ben Endy for RXR Sports. Thank you for listening.